himself. Look at verse number 26. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, and every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation, let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophet speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let him first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, and also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy, and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Let's pray together this morning. Father, again, we are so ungrateful to have your word that never changes. The culture does not change it and cannot change it. And Father, that's why we must lean upon it, because we can be changed. The culture can infiltrate. And Father, we pray that this morning you'll take the word of God, that the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God will take that word and sink it deep down into our ears, deep down into our hearts. Oh, Lord, we pray. Father, I pray also as the preacher comes this morning, Father, will you grant unto him wisdom and power to preach, just to be faithful as he always is in the word and to cut it straight. Father, again, we love you now, and we pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Brethren, this morning we continue in our series on church leadership, and we plan to have uh, this message and then one more message after that, and uh, so Lord willing, next month we'll finish this short series. But if you remember where we have been, our first message was concerning a plurality of elders, and what we did is we looked in the New Testament and we saw that all of the churches were always led by a plurality of pastors or elders. And then we looked at the next message, which was the nature of the New Testament churches. And we saw there, as we looked at the way the new churches were set up and the way that they functioned, we saw that a plurality of leaders who functioned as leaders among equals was best in the way that the churches functioned as a whole. In fact, the plurality of elders leading best fits in with the way that the church has functioned. Every member of the local church we also saw is to serve by properly exercising their spiritual gifts. Let me just read you a passage for a moment that reminds us of this. Romans 12 verses 6 through 8 says, 
Whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. If ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth in exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. These are just some guidelines concerning how to practice and use those spiritual gifts that we have been given. Guidelines concerning the practice of spiritual gifts are common throughout the New Testament, but oftentimes these directions are ignored today in churches. For example, clear instructions concerning the gifts of prophecy, tongues, and interpretation of tongues were to be practiced and they are found in our passage that we read this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We saw specific guidelines concerning the way that those gifts were to be used as the congregation was gathered together. But such guidelines are often ignored today in the charismatic movement, for example. Not only does the charismatic movement err with regard to the exercise of certain gifts, But many of the charismatic churches also claim that women may hold to the office of overseer, even though this role is specifically reserved in the New Testament for men. So what we want to do this morning, I haven't given us the title of our message yet, the title of our message today is simply Male Leadership. This series is about church leadership. We saw plurality of elders, how the churches are to function, but we also want to look at the fact now that it is male leadership that is to be practiced in the church. The phony, circus-like revivalism of the charismatic era, which so often substitutes feelings for doctrinal clarity, emotionalism for truth, and false excitement for biblical worship, has very often rejected the Bible's clear statements concerning the proper roles of men and women in the local church. Of course, we know that this movement exploded in the 20th century, But the modern charismatic error is actually not the first one to show up in history. Church history records for us that a movement that was known as the Montanist movement began around the year A.D. 170, when a young convert to Christianity by the name of Montanus began to prophesy in Asia Minor. Two prophetesses named Priscilla and Maximilla joined Montanus, and they became influential leaders in the movement. So you not only had Montanus as the male leader of this movement, but these two women all of a sudden also were in positions of leadership in these churches. These two prophetesses, along with Montanus, led the movement, These three characters actually claimed that the Holy Spirit was speaking in a new way through them in fulfillment of the promises of Jesus in John 14 and John 16 concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit. One church historian wrote concerning Montanus, quote, In his ambitious desire to be a Christian leader, he laid himself open to the enemy, became spiritually intoxicated, and fell suddenly into trances and unnatural ecstasies. He began ranting, babbling, and uttering strange sounds, delivering prophecies in such a way that conflicted with the custom of the church transmitted generation by generation from the beginning. Then he writes two women, that's Priscilla and Maximilla, 
whom Montanus filled with his false spirit, so that they babbled madly in a disorderly and wild way like Montanus himself. That's a little bit of a description of this charismatic movement that came about about 140 years after the resurrection of Christ. In many ways, this movement demonstrated over time how erroneous it was. Maximilla prophesied this, quote, After me, there will be no more prophecy but the end, end quote. So she said that, and she actually died about A.D. 179, and lo and behold, the end never came. But it just shows, again, some of the ridiculousness that was going on. The church eventually excommunicated all who were a part of this Montanist movement. In history and even today, the scripture roles of men and women in the church have been ignored, and women have entered into positions of church leadership. That reminds me, I'm going to read a few quotes here from church history after a few moments, but I forgot my notes back there in the bag. Brother Harrison, could you bring that little blue book up there? They'll get it for you out of the bag here, and uh, I'll read those for you maybe in in a few moments. But before we do that, I want to talk about another error. The charismatic error is one thing, where women are in church leadership in many of these charismatic churches. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. But there is also... Another error, which blurs the distinction between the roles of men and women in the body of Christ. It's often referred to as evangelical feminism. And they seek not only to blur the distinctions between men and women, but they also try to erase any differences whatsoever between men and women. Feminism is also known as egalitarianism. And they claim that there is no difference in the roles of men or women in the home or in the society. This philosophy concerning men and women has also been adopted by many churches. Now, just a little bit of advice, a little bit of counsel, maybe if you ever talk about this to others, if you get on this subject and you're talking to different people, it might be important to inform people rightly concerning this topic. A lot of times, I think even in many fundamentalist circles, that's not necessarily done. You know, a lot of times it's just said women act this way, men act this way. But a lot of times God's people aren't so informed of how did we get to where we did. And obviously I can't explain all of that in this short sermon. But the first wave of feminism began in the 1800s. And it actually had its roots in witchcraft. I read quotes to you before, I think it was about a year and a half ago, from a history book concerning that. But just something that's a little interesting for us to consider. The implementations of the feminist ideology in society became very popular in the early 1900s, in particular in Russia and in the Soviet Union. As many of you know, communism took over Russia in the early 1900s through what we know as as the Bolshevik Revolution. One of the leaders of that revolution was a man by the name of Vladimir Lenin. After this revolution, abortion and sodomy were legalized, and no-fault divorce became common in Russia. That's the early 1900s. Now, according to Kevin Swanson in his radio broadcast on Generations, he says this concerning Lenin. Lenin was very influenced by a book that was written by an apostate son of a pastor, and his book was entitled, What is to be Done? This book promoted 
the release of girls from the family economy and the need to get them out of the home into the corporate structure, which would be run like a democracy. The book sets up this scenario of a woman getting married in order to get out from under the authority of her parents. Her husband then fakes his suicide so that she can marry the man who she really likes, which was actually the man's best friend. The idea is promoted of a woman living her own life and making decisions according to her own desires. The dissolution of the family unit with the father or husband as the responsible head was promoted. And this was a book that very much influenced Vladimir Lenin, one of the early leaders of the communist movement in Russia. These revolutionary ideas were right at the top of the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. Vladimir Lenin hated marriage. He hated morality. And the communist motivation was these goals. Destroy the family, number one. Eliminate homeschooling, number two. Destroy the family economy, that's number three. And number four, obliterate marriage. And so schools, universities, businesses, and government policies were set up to accomplish these very things. That's around the time that my grandparents were born, but that's what was going on in Russia. So this didn't just start in the last 40 years. This has been going on for a long time. They also in Russia had the goals to set up equal opportunity for men and women in the household. So in other words, it's no longer the man and the woman working together in, a, in an economy in the house, but rather now they're in competition with each other. Their goal was bring women into the social economy, into legislation and into government out of that family economy. Then in the culture, in the country of Russia, this was established communal kitchens, public eating houses, laundries, repairing shops, nurseries, kindergartens, children's homes. We would call that today daycare. Different daycares were set up. Maternity hospitals, homes for mothers and children, mothercraft clinics, organized lectures on child care, so on and so forth. But what you see here, brethren, this was communism, and this is the way it was established in Russia. But sadly, I think we can say this is our culture today. What appeals to us as freedom is actually slavery and deception. Are we warned about that in Scripture? Promising freedom when they themselves are slaves of corruption. That's a tool the enemy uses. If we go this route, we're going to be free, but actually we become enslaved. As feminism has been adopted by most churches in our country, we see that many women claim to be pastors and they are in positions now of church leadership. Correction and protection from such errors can only come as we look to Scripture with hearts that truly desire to know the will of God and to conform to his precepts. What we're going to do this morning is we're just going to focus on two particular passages in Scripture. Lord willing, in our final message in this series next time, we'll deal with this just a little bit more as we go through the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But to start with, let's look at 1 Corinthians 14. <clears throat> we read this passage this morning. I want to begin by looking at and reading 
verses 34 and 35 just to begin, and then we want to look at the surrounding context and really understand what is being said. Verse 34, Paul writes, Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, brethren, when you read a passage like that, in our modern day, it's very important for us to have a right understanding and a correct application of this passage. Now, we're going to obviously mention evangelical feminists try to combat these verses, and they have different things that they say, and I'll mention some of those in a little bit. But in conservative churches like ours, and even in many Reformed churches like ours, there is a new interpretation that has become very popular concerning this passage. It's come about, it's grown in popularity, I'd say, in the last 30 years or so. And this basically says that Paul is simply forbidding women to be involved in judging prophecies, a duty that's mentioned there for the church in verse 29 of this passage. These are people that would also say women should not be pastors, women shouldn't be in church leadership, but all that Paul is talking about here is women are forbidden to be involved in the judgment of prophecies that would take place there in the congregation at Corinth. Those who hold to that view believe women should not be overseers, they do not believe that they should exercise authority over men in the congregation, but they would justify women prophesying or speaking in tongues in a local assembly if anyone in the assembly had those gifts, and they assert that this was the practice of the churches in the New Testament. Now, I disagree with that. I would actually say that I would agree with what has been the belief throughout the majority of church history concerning this passage. We do not deny that a woman may pray or join in the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, as we see in Ephesians 5, verses 19 and 20. Yet these verses make it abundantly clear that women were forbidden to both prophesy and speak in a tongue in the local assembly. But to see that, we really have to examine the context. Look at verse 27, and this is where Paul begins to lay out some directions, because we see in verse 26, things were just out of order in this church when they would gather together. Some would have a psalm, and some would have a teaching, and some would have a prophecy. And we talk about prophecy there. I don't think he's just talking about preaching because he talks about having a revelation that wasn't premeditated, it wasn't pre-studied, it wasn't pre-learned. But they were coming together, and they were wanting to practice these gifts in such a disorderly way. And so he rebukes them for that in verse 26, and now he lays down guidelines concerning how these gifts were to be practiced. Now, as we go through this, I'm not getting into the arguments of cessationism or continuationism. Are these gifts still for today? Are they not? We've had a lot of teaching concerning that in our church already. I'm just laying down here. These gifts were being practiced at Corinth. So what was the order that Paul laid down concerning how they were to be practiced? Look at verses 27 and 28. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Now notice, first these are directions concerning the gifts of tongues and interpretation of tongues in the congregation. The local congregation is clearly in view 
in the context. He's talking about when the Corinthians are gathered together for worship. Just look in this chapter. First, look at verse 5, if you would, or verse 4, I should say. Look at what he says there. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth, prophesieth edifieth the church. So he's talking about how the people of God are edified when they assemble together. Okay, now look at verse number five. I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. So again, directions concerning gifts. Why? So that the people of God, when they're gathered together, may be edified. Look down at verse 23. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place and all speak with tongues, and he goes on, my point is, look, the church is gathered together. That's the context in which this appears. And finally, verse 26, we read that earlier. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm and hath a doctrine, and he goes on. He's talking about when you are together. When you're together for worship, that's the context in which this appears. And so in that context, he says, if one spoke in a tongue, it was to be done by two or at the most three. You just weren't have everybody speaking in tongues in the congregation. It had to be orderly. But if there was no one present there to interpret the tongues, if nobody was there present to do that, even those with the gifts of tongues, he says in verse 28, were to keep silence in the church. They were to be silent. It did not matter if they had the gifts of tongues or not. If there was no one to interpret so that the church could receive edifying, then they were not to speak in tongues at all. Don't speak in tongues in the congregation if there is no one there to interpret to edify the rest of the congregation. Now he deals with prophecy. Look at verse 29. We'll read verses 29 through 33. Let the prophets speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace as in all churches of the saints. Now notice, here's directions for the prophets in the congregation. Now notice a few things. Number one, only two or three were to speak. So again, there's an order. And the others were to pass judgment concerning the prophecies. In other words, you weren't just allowed to just prophesy and it would be accepted by the congregation. Look also, if a revelation was made to another in verse 30, the other one who was there prophesying before, the first one was to hold his peace. In other words, he was to stop so the other could prophesy. As with tongues, those with the gift of prophecy were forbidden to exercise the gift when another one was prophesying. So there's an order. He was to keep silent if someone else was prophesying. So you have an order here of how this gift was to be practiced as well. So you could speak in tongues if you had the gift, in order, but you were to keep silent if no one was to interpret. You could prophesy, but if a revelation was made to another who was there, the first one was then to keep silent, don't prophesy at all. So we see the order, and we see the 
the, the regulations that Paul is clearly laying out here. In the context, Paul gives directions to keep silent, and he's forbidding the use of these gifts in the congregation when a particular situation was at hand. So I think that's clear. It seems that in the church at Corinth, women were using these gifts in the local assembly. But even if they were not, Paul clearly then, as we come to verses 34 and 35, forbids them from ever doing so in the congregation when he says the women are to keep silence in the churches. So think about it, brethren. Just go over it one more time. Those with the gift of tongues who were speaking in tongues were to keep silent and not use the gift if there was no one to interpret. Those prophesying were to keep silent and not use the gift if someone else had a revelation and they were to speak. Concerning the women, they were just to keep silent. No speaking in tongues, no prophesying, even if they had the gift. That could be used in other contexts, but when the church was gathered together, when men and women were present, then they were to not use those gifts. Paul here is not simply referring to judging prophecies. That's that new popular interpretation that I told you about. It's not only judging, but it's the use of the gifts of prophecy and tongues that he is completely forbidding. How else could we interpret verse 34 where he says, For it is not permitted unto them to speak. Prophecy or speaking in tongues requires that you talk, but he forbids that. Why must they ask their own husbands at home? Simply because, he says in verse 35, it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. How could a woman prophesy or speak in tongues in the public assembly and then not be doing something improper? You see how this is really clear what Paul is doing. Now, this is clear teaching. Women are not to prophesy, speak in tongues, or even speak openly in the church assembly. They're not even to ask questions when questions were asked. Instead... When the assembly was gathered, they were to hold back from doing that. They were to ask their own husbands at home. Now, here's a question. And a lot of times when you go through this teaching in 1 Corinthians 14, some people wonder, well, what about what we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 5? Why does Paul speak of Christian women who may have been praying or prophesying in the church at Corinth? That's in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5. Just turn back there just for a moment. We'll just read the verse. Because this is a re one reason why a lot of people say that, only, that women were only forbidden to judge the prophecies because clearly here in the church of Corinth they were praying and prophesying. Look at 1 Corinthians 11.5. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. So look what he does. He mentions women here in Corinth praying and prophesying. Well, brethren, there's no need for confusion here at all because Paul is not permitting the practice of women prophesying in the local congregation in that verse. Rather, he has, was acknowledging that these Christian women in the church of Corinth had the gift of prophecy, yes. But in chapter 14, when he gives specific directions concerning the use of the gift itself in the local assembly, there he forbids the sisters from using that gift in the local congregation altogether. And this is something that was understood throughout a majority of the history of the church itself. Let me just give you one quote and one example from a church father who lived between 185 and 254 by the name of Origen. Now, Origen 
was not necessarily accurate in a lot of his teaching. If you've been with us in church history, you know that. But he did do some good things as well, and he did say some things that were obviously very biblical. But here, let me just give you a quote concerning his understanding. And the reason why I'm giving this is because I want you just to see this testimony from history. This is Origen, quote, If the daughters of Philip prophesied, at least they did not speak in the assemblies. For we do not find this fact in evidence in the Acts of the Apostles. Much less in the Old Testament, it is said that Deborah was a prophetess. There is no evidence that Deborah delivered speeches to the people, as did Jeremiah and Isaiah. Huldah, if you remember her, who was a prophetess in the Old Testament, did not speak to the people, but only to a man who consulted her at her home. The gospel itself mentions a prophetess, Anna, but she did not speak publicly. Even if it is granted to a woman to show the sign of prophecy, she is nevertheless not permitted to speak in an assembly. When Miriam the prophetess spoke, she was leading a choir of women. Then he goes on to say, For as Paul declares, I do not permit a woman to teach, or even less to tell a man what to do. So he's quoting from 1 Corinthians there with his translation he has. So there you go, and there's just a testimony from church history. Here's the point. Women did have the gift of prophecy, Old Testament and New Testament, and they would use it in certain contexts. But what Origen was saying was, is they were forbidden to use it when the congregation was gathered together in a public manner. And that's what Paul would be forbidding. And that was the understanding of the church for a long time. Here's a question. If women are not permitted to speak in the church assembly then how is it that they could possibly function as an elder or as a pastor in a local congregation? And that's really the point we're really driving at here because this series is about church leadership. If that's the directions Paul lays down, how would it be possible for any woman to be a pastor? How could a woman function as one who must be apt to teach? Elder must be apt to teach. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 2. How could she do that? How could she labor in the word and in doctrine? 1 Timothy 5.17, if she's forbidden to do that according to the principles laid down in 1 Corinthians 14. If the practice of the gifts of speaking is forbidden, then surely preaching and teaching is also forbidden because these are the two main functions of an overseer. Let me just quote to you from, I think, some more accurate theologians than Origen. Let me quote to you from Brother John Gill who says concerning this passage. And this is going to show you, just not making up my own thing as I'm going through 1 Corinthians 14. I'm just basically repeating what the view was of the church for most of history. Here's what Gill says, quote, For it is not permitted unto them to speak, that is, in public assemblies, in the church of God. They might speak with tongue, they might not speak with tongues, nor prophesy or preach or teach the word. All speaking is not prohibited. They might speak their experiences to the church or give an account of the work of God upon their souls. They might speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs or speak as an evidence in any case at a church meeting, but not in such a sort as carried in it direction, instruction, government, and authority. It was not allowed by God that they should speak in any authoritative manner in the church, nor was it suffered in the churches of Christ." It's John Gill. Let me give you another one. John Calvin. Here's what he wrote about this passage. Quote, 
The office of teaching is a superiority in the church and is, consequently, inconsistent with subjection. For how unseemly a thing it were that one who is under subjection to one of the members should preside over the entire body. It is therefore an argument from things inconsistent. If the woman is under subjection, she is consequently prohibited from authority to teach in public. And unquestionably, wherever even natural propriety has been maintained, women have in all ages been excluded from public management affairs. It is the dictate of common sense that female government is improper and unseemly. So, again, these are recognized, faithful, historical commentaries on Scripture. One more, Matthew Henry, probably the most popular of the commentaries. Quote, They were not ordinarily to teach, nor so much as to debate and ask questions in the church, but learn in silence there, and if difficulties occurred, ask their own husbands at home. So, this is the interpretation of the passage, and this is what was held by the majority of church leaders throughout history. Why does Paul give these directions? Well, let me give you some feminist claims and what they say about 1 Corinthians 14. They say, you see, Paul's giving these directions here because there were women in the church at Corinth who were teaching false doctrine. Problem. Zero evidence of this in the New Testament. It's never mentioned. Completely silent. Secondly, they say, well, you see, Paul gave these directions because he was influenced by the culture of his time. And so that's why he laid out these directions. Clearly not. Two reasons why these feminist claims cannot be the case. Number one, when Paul writes that it is a shame for a woman to speak in church, the Greek word there that's translated as shame is aiskros. It means disgraceful. So he's saying if you're openly speaking in the congregation, this woman, she is usurping to herself a role that is designed only for men in God's created order. You see, he's not talking about culture here. He's talking about the created order, what is shameful in that order. Secondly, look at the passage again there. Look at verse number 34. Paul gives a reason for the directions in verse 34. He says, this is what the law says. Look at verse 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, look here, as also saith the law. What was that? Was that the law in Corinth or something? Well, no, he's, he's again, Paul's an Old Testament theologian. He's pointing back to the law, books of the law. He's pointing back to the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch, the first five books of Scripture. So what does the Pentateuch say? Genesis 3.16, what happened after the fall? Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. See, now there'd be some conflict. There'd be some conflict. Just like that sin desired Cain in Genesis chapter 4, that is desired to rule over him, now the woman would desire to rule over the man. And the man would desire to harshly rule over the woman. There would be this conflict. But these roles were not established after the fall. They were already there prior to the fall, but now there would be some corruption. 
1 Corinthians 11.9, Paul also points back to the law, to the book of Genesis, to the original creation. When he says, 1 Corinthians 11.9, man was not created for the woman, but the woman for the man. So that shows very clearly, these roles are not a result of the fall. These roles were established at creation. They can be corrupted because of sin, but they can be restored through genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man should be alone. God would make a helpmeet for him. There's just another. Again, these are all just different verses from the law. When you know these principles that were established from the beginning, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35, make perfect sense because Paul is just pulling from principles from the law. These are the reasons for Paul's directions, and they're not optional because for us to just obey or disobey as we please is direct disobedience actually to God. See, Paul isn't saying this because he was influenced by the, his Jewish culture in the first century. Paul's not saying this because this was the culture in Corinth. No, you know that because he says this is the reason, this is what the law says. He gives reasons from Scripture. He doesn't say this is just because this is what the Corinthians do out in public. This is because of my Jewish background. Not at all. Listen to 1 Corinthians 14.37. We read it earlier as Mike read. He said, the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. There's a third reason. Paul says it is a shame. Paul goes back to the law. Paul makes it very clear this is God's commandment. This is God's commandment. These are not principles that Paul simply inherited. It is true that women were not allowed to speak in the Jewish synagogue. But the reasons for that were scriptural, not merely cultural. In the same way, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, these directions do not originate from human culture, nor were they written just for a specific culture at a specific time. They are based upon the law. They are to be practiced in all the churches of the saints. You see that in verse 33. These principles that Paul's laying down, all the churches of the saints. Let's look at a second passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is the only other one we'll look at. Verses 11 through 14. There's a lot here because the enemies of God and heretics in the church will just live for battling against what the true teaching of the Bible is. There is a good book called Evangelical Feminism, A New Path to Liberalism by Wayne Grudem. If you're ever interested, he just goes point by point by point by point against argument after argument after argument that feminists make against the biblical teaching. If you're ever interested in digging more, but if you just have these two passages, you understand the basics, you can pretty much answer most objections that are brought against us. But let's read 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 14. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, Timothy had been called upon by Paul to deal with problems in the church at Ephesus. While Timothy was at the church ministering, Paul tells him his reason for writing the letter to him. In chapter 3, verse 15, he says, That thou mayest know... 
how thou oughtest to conduct thyself in the house of God. So he's laying down again an order here in how the church at Ephesus was to function. The specific directions that Paul wrote concerning women in the church here in this passage teach us about some of the ways that Christian women were to conduct themselves in the church. Now, I've read this to you, but I want you to see the similarities between this passage and 1 Corinthians 14. Number one, 1 Corinthians 14 said the women were to keep silence. Now, here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the two phrases are used, learn in silence and to be in silence. So you see the similarities there. Number two, 1 Corinthians 14 said believing women are to be under obedience. Here in this passage in 1 Timothy 2, it says they are to receive instruction with all subjection. So again, you have the same thing Paul is saying in both passages. Number three, the reasons Paul gives to demonstrate that these are legitimate principles to be obeyed in the church are also the same as in 1 Corinthians 14. That is, he doesn't give reasons from culture. He gives reasons from Scripture. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 20, you'll see that Paul warns against false teachers in the Ephesian church. But he doesn't mention any women being involved. He only names men. So again, we don't have any evidence that there were false teachers at the church at Ephesus who were women, and that's why Paul is saying, let the women keep silent. That's another feminist claim, that Paul is just telling the women to keep silent because there were false teachers there that were women. Again, zero evidence. But you see, people want to twist scripture for any reason. But that simply is not the case. Paul does not give cultural reasons for the directions that he wrote either. Now, before we look into a little bit more detail concerning what reasons Paul did give, let's just talk just for a moment concerning cultural custom versus church custom. There is a big difference between the two in Scripture. Let me just give you an example. I mentioned this last time. I said we'll look into this a little more. Remember in Romans 16, 16, that verse that we all like so much and we think, wow, I couldn't imagine living at that time in the church. He says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Believe it or not, I knew a young man who grew up in a group where that's what the church did. They actually still practice this in America. There is a denomination that does that. But nevertheless, Paul knew that the Christians of his time would greet one another in that way, in that context. Paul never gives specific reasons from Scripture as to why a warm greeting must be done in that particular way. It's the principle of the matter that we recognize. Greeting one another in a friendly way as Christians is binding on all Christians for all time. But when Paul mentions the way they were to greet in Rome, that's just a cultural custom. We know that. We understand that. But as in 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul gives reasons from Scripture that were not based on culture. So there's how you can know. Now he's not talking about cultural custom. He's talking about church custom. It is impossible then to disobey these clear directions that Paul gives and just say, well, we don't obey them literally because that was just the culture. There's an underlying principle now that we can just obey as is proper for our culture, our culture. That's what feminists say. Clearly not the case. The custom here and the principle in 1 Corinthians 14 and in 1 Timothy 2 are inseparably linked together. There is a difference then between cultural custom and church custom. 
Cultural customs in the Bible are not universally binding because they may manifest biblical principles in various ways depending on the culture in which they are being practiced. How do I greet everybody when they come in? How does Mike greet? How does everybody greet everybody? Usually, it's by the shaking of the hand. You see, you got a principle there and the way that the culture does it. We oftentimes shake hands. But a church custom has nothing to do with a particular culture because they are outward manifestations of biblical realities that are, be, are to be followed in every culture and at every time. And that's how you know the difference. A big way to know the difference also is the reasons that are given for what is mentioned. If reasons are given from Scripture for the practice, it is not cultural custom. Then you know it is church custom. So we conclude 1 Timothy 2 here, verses 11-14, Paul is not laying down cultural reasons for the women in the Ephesian church because he doesn't give cultural reasons for the directions. What does he give? Look at verses 13 and 14. He gives creation ordinances as his reasons for the directions. Now, if you're talking to people who have a feminist persuasion, evangelical feminist, egalitarian, they're going to come to you possibly from all kinds of different ways. That was the culture, false teachers in the church. Notice Paul never mentions any of that one time. All you need to do in this passage is take them to verses 13 and 14 and make really clear, well, let's look at Paul's reasons for the directions. Look at verse 13. Here's his first reason. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. According to the laws of nature, the woman is to be subject then to the man. This was the ordinance of God from the beginning, which is seen in the order in which the man and the woman were created. So Paul's saying, since this was the order that was laid down at creation, this is why you are to follow these principles here in the church. Let me just read to you from Gill. Here's what he says concerning this. I think he says it better than I would. So I'm going to quote. Quote, she was formed out of him, was made out of one of his ribs, and was formed for him, for his use, service, help, and comfort. And here lies the strength of the apostle's reason, why the woman should be in subjection to the man. Not so much because he was made before her, for so were the beasts of the field before Adam. And yet this gave them no superiority to him. But because she was made out of him and made for him, 1 Corinthians 11.8 says that, so that the woman's subjection to the man is according to the laws of nature and creation and is antecedent to the fall. So you see that? So the feminists claim that all these roles are just a result of the fall. So in Christ, we must have egalitarianism because we don't want those roles that were a result of the fall. No, these roles, as I mentioned earlier, were before the fall. They were at creation ordained. The corruption of them can come after the fall, but through Christ we go back to the, or at least it should be our striving, go back to the way they were to originally be practiced at Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Now look at the book of verse 14. Here's the second reason. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. In other words, since it was the woman who was deceived rather than the man, 
Testimony is given to the fact that from the beginning, it was the man who was designed to rule. I think we understand this. What does it tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11? It says that the woman was deceived. Eve was deceived by the serpent. The serpent beguiled her. He deceived her. Not Adam. Adam knew full well what he was doing. There's nowhere in Scripture that ever says Adam was deceived. Adam's sin was as he chose to follow his wife, who had sinned, instead of following the command of God. He knew what he was doing. But Eve was deceived. Now, what's the Paul point is making? The point he's making is, from the beginning, man was designed to lead. And if Adam would have been faithfully leading in that situation with Eve, it's possible that Eve wouldn't have, or he wouldn't have followed Eve into that sin. That's the issue. But once Eve took it upon herself to say, no, we are going this direction. Here, I eat of the fruit. Here, Adam, you eat of the fruit. All of a sudden, the roles are reversed because the woman who was not designed to lead fell into the transgression and was deceived. The judgment upon the woman, which was pronounced by God after the fall in Genesis 3.16, only confirms God's original design. It is clear the man was to lead and bear the authority in the home, in the society then, and in the church. So because of that, in the church, the women were not to usurp that authority. That is why Paul says in verse 12, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Brethren, we see then that this passage confirms all of our conclusions from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If a woman then was to keep silence. Now think about the title of our sermon. We're just talking about male leadership. If a woman here in this passage in 1 Timothy 2 was to keep silence and not speak, it would be impossible for her to teach both men and women in the church as a pastor. I mean, it's really clear. Rick Warren, according to him, he said that he needed to repent of this belief. You see, According to Rick Warren, this sermon is very sinful that I just gave to you. And we need to repent. It's amazing what the deceitful heart will do with Scripture. People will believe whatever they want to believe, no matter what the Bible says. And they will try their very best to twist Scripture to try to justify their sinful action. It's incredible. Verse 12, But I suffer not a woman to teach. Well, what does chapter 3 and verse 12 say? Uh, overseer must be apt to teach. Must be apt to teach. So the woman not to teach, the elder must be apt to teach. See the contradiction there? If you say that the woman should be an elder. First Timothy 5.17, they must labor in the word and doctrine. How's she going to do that? So no Christian woman is to ever be appointed to the office of an overseer in a local Christian church. That's the clear conclusion that we must come to from Scripture. Finally, as we end here, let me mention just some practical things that we also see from these passages. Number one, feminism, which came out of the so-called Enlightenment period from over in Europe, is always proven wrong by Scripture, and we are never to try to mix it with Scripture because it is a sin against God to do so. You see, it's someone like Rick Warren who needs to repent. It is a sin what he is doing. It is disobedience. Evangelical feminism is also a lie 
with no good arguments. Example, one feminist claim is this. If men and women are equal in value, which the Bible teaches, they cannot have different roles. If they are to have different roles, then they cannot be equal in value. Well, what's a biblical response? It is true when we look at Scripture. That in Christ's spiritual kingdom, individual distinctions are not regarded or accounted for. Paul writes about that in Galatians, Galatians 3.28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All the blessings of salvation are freely given to all, regardless of people group, social customs, social status, or gender. They're equally given. But in God's created order, 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, the head of the woman is the man. So there's a distinction. That's what the evangelical feminists refuse to do. They refuse to acknowledge the context of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 and want to apply that to every area of life, not just simply the benefits of being in Christ's spiritual kingdom. And that's where they go wrong. Calvin admitted that there is an equality between the man and the woman in reference to the spiritual kingdom of Christ. But then he says, quote, as regards external arrangement and political decorum, the man follows Christ and the woman the man, so that they are not upon the same footing, but on the contrary, this inequality exists. That is, inequality in role, not in worth. There is inequality in worth, inequality in role, because God has a different plan for men and for women to fulfill in his kingdom. Also, it's important to mention in response to feminism, the word head in scripture regarding man and woman, Christ and the church. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 5? Turn there for a moment. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, look at verses 22 and 23. <clears throat> we'll read verse 24 as well. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Now, a great twisting of this passage takes place by the evangelical feminists. The Greek word there for head is the Greek word kephale, kephale. It refers to being in authority over, according to all recognized lexicons, for ancient Greek. There's no question about it. And that makes sense even according to the passage because it says that Christ is the kephale of the church and the church submits to Christ. Same Greek word for the man and the woman. The man is the kephale, the husband is the kephale of the wife in the same way that the church is subject to Christ, so the wife is to her own husband. The modern feminist claim is that kephale simply means source and it has doesn't talk about a distinction of roles at all. Actually, that claim has no grounds to stand upon. We as Christians should say, give me some evidence, please. Let me quote to you from Rain Grudem. Quote, to my knowledge, no one has yet produced one text in ancient Greek literature where a person is called the kephale of another person or group 
and that person is not the one in authority over the other person or group, end quote. He also notes that in ancient Greek literature, quote, over 50 examples of kephale, meaning ruler, authority over, have been found, but no examples of the meaning of source without authority. So we must never go astray into this, brethren. These are evil lies that imprison people in deception. Number two, practical point, this really is a test of obedience in our own day. We're living in a time of great apostasy, great false teaching. There's no doubt about it. Many people wonder, are we in the final days right before the time of Christ's return? Our response would be, could be, I don't know. But one thing that is for sure, we are seeing the collapse of our society. We're seeing the collapse of marriage, collapse of family, collapse of economy, collapse of government, collapse of the professing churches. We're seeing that. And there's false teaching that is all over the place. In many ways, it seems that the scripture that says judgment must begin at the house of God is clear right before us. And those that you never would have thought would apostatize from the faith are. And they are accepting over and over and over again false teachings that are in direct contradiction to Scripture. Just think of the example of Beth Moore. Just give you a little story. Some years ago, back in 2011, two young couples asked me, what do you think of Beth Moore? And she, she teaches groups of women, have some suspicions, don't know, look into it, tell us what you think. And the claim was she only teaches women, doesn't teach men, doesn't believe women should be pastors, any of those things at that time. So I looked into it, and I watched her and read about her and so forth. I came back and I said to them, you can do research about her, but stay away from her. Don't listen to her as far as for edification and instruction. A lot of the things she says is right, but there's something wrong about her. She's got her wrong spirit. She's got her wrong attitude. She's very bold. She conducts herself in a way that is not proper for a woman to do so. Even if she's just teaching a group of women, she's not being a good influence on them at all. Completely disapprove, is what I said. Well, what's very interesting is, look at Beth Moore today. You see, she had a bad spirit then. And eventually, where does this go? Now she has no problem teaching groups of men and women. And she's gone completely woke you see a person can say accurate things a person can have a knowledge of scripture but if the heart is rotten it's important for us to recognize that you can have doctrine in your mind but how are you living what is your influence that's all very important john MacArthur, in a sermon some time ago which was entitled does the bible permit a woman to preach quoted beth moore and uh This is after, of course, John MacArthur spoke against her. But she says this, quote, I didn't surrender to a calling of man when I was 18 years old. I surrendered to a calling of God. It never occurs to me for a second not to fulfill it. I will follow Jesus. Jesus tells me what to do. And this is the same woman who claims that she has conversations with Jesus on an everyday basis. MacArthur then went on to 1 Corinthians 14, verses 36 through 38. We read it earlier. What? 
came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul makes it clear to the Corinthians, this is God's command. Don't think that you are the ones only who have received the word of God and you can do whatever you want to do. Which is exactly what Moore wants. Verse 38, but if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Another way to translate that, if any man doesn't recognize this, he is not recognized. So in other words, if you refuse to submit to the teaching of Scripture because of a supposed calling that Jesus gave to you in a special way, you're actually a fraud. That's exactly what you are. That's exactly what Beth Moore is. Number three, this is also, I think, very practical. In the Bible study this morning, Howard dealt with this a lot. But I'll just mention it just a little bit here for a third practical point. When you think, I kind of want to use code language here because of young ones. You familiar with that uh, garbage um, company here? I think it's in Bismarck, maybe it's in Manning. You ever see those trash cans? They stand there, trans trash. That's just what we'll call it. Trans trash. Where did trans trash come from? The transgender stuff that we see today. This has been on the move for a long time. It just didn't start in the 1990s. This goes back to the 1800s, brethren. That I know for a fact just from studying history. Gender role reversal ultimately leads to gender confusion, and that is a fact. How can we cure this? You can't cure, repentance is the answer, but you can't cure this just by going back to 2002 or 1990. You got to go all the way back and say, where did we go wrong? We went wrong when we first confused the roles of men and women And that inevitably leads to confusion concerning what your own gender is. That's the inevitable result. The issue concerning women's sports. I absolutely hate that these men want to compete with women in sports. It's evil. It's wicked. But when you think of all these women athletes who have abortions so that they can save their athletic career, who refuse to have children, who refuse to be married in a home, who want to compete like men in public. Gender confusion is inevitably what it leads to. I'm not surprised to see men wanting to compete with women at this day and age. This goes back a long time. When women wanted to compete like men in the society, eventually men will get confused and want to be like women and compete with them too. That's just, you're not going to hear that on Fox News, but that is the inevitable result. So what can we do, brethren, as Christians in the church? The coming generation may have a lot of battles to fight, just as we do now. What about our children? What about our sons? What about our daughters? How do we want them to respond to this? A lot of kids that were raised in Christian homes, and even some in churches like ours, do apostatize and go off into these deceptions.
Ultimately, it's only by God's grace. But what are some of the things we can do? Well, number one, for us men, we need to act like men. If we have sons, we must strive to influence them to be men, to be leaders, to be faithful workers, to be men of integrity, to be men who are protectors, who take care of those who are in need. The way we as men speak, the way we interact, the way even that we dress, this all is very important when you consider raising sons and even raising daughters. If you are weak, it gives your son a bad example to also be weak, and it doesn't give your daughters a good example concerning how men are to be. See, men, our disobedience can have a negative effect on our children when they are older. But if we are obedient to the way we are supposed to be as men, then God can use that to affect these young children in a good way. Same with the women. Our daughters must see in you those godly qualities that Scripture speaks about. Being nurturers, loving children, being faithful keepers at home, being faithful in your role, even to the way you interact, the way you talk, the way you dress, that all affects the next generation. If you are disobedient in your roles, it can lead to heartache two decades down the road. It really can. Because your daughters can see that in you, and they can go off and do a lifestyle. What influenced them to do that? The way they grew up, well, of course, it's the sinful heart, but if they don't see in you, you being faithful to God's role yourself, we can be disciplined in the future by seeing rebellion in our own daughters. You see what I mean? Ultimately, parents, when us as men, or the women, the mothers, if we are disobedient, it can affect our boys and our girls in a very negative way, and that only will cause us heartache in the future. We must be obedient and faithful to the principles, first of God's word ourselves, and then we hope and pray that this will have great effects on the children as they see that godly example. Last practical point. What are some good works that women can do? Because of the sermon like this, when you talk about what they are not to do concerning the office of elder, what are some of the good things that Scripture says they do? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll just go to a couple passages, and then we'll be all done. 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's so sad to see how a lot of women, even I mentioned Beth Moore, Joyce Meyer, who's one of the biggest influential ones, how it's not these principles they want to do. They have a lust for power. They have a lust for authority. But what does Scripture say? Look at 1 Timothy 5. Look at verse 10. Speaking here of faithful widows who were to be supported by the church if they didn't have anyone else to take care of them. They were to be well reported for good works. Here are these good works. Ready? If she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. It doesn't say if she has preached sermons. You see, if she's been a faithful elder in the church. These are the good works. You ladies out there who really have a heart for the Lord, who really want your lives to matter, who really want to use your life for eternal value and for God's glory, how can you do that amongst God's people? Here it is right here. This is how God uses 
godly women. This is how he uses them. And this is how he can use you too. Look at verse 14 of this same chapter. I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. You see, if you, if you don't follow these principles, it gives an opportunity for the enemy to speak against the Christian faith, to even blaspheme. We don't want to be a means for that. But these are, again, the good works that faithful Christian women can and should live in. Ultimately, I think in here you could say if you're a Christian, you want to be used by God. You want to be used by him in a, in a great way for his glory, not our own attention, right? How can you do this as a faithful woman? Here it is right here. Then finally, uh, Titus, Titus chapter 2. You follow these directions. You might not have the attention of Joyce Meyer or Beth Moore, but you'll be used by them far more than they would ever be used. You're being used for evil. But look at this, Titus chapter 2, verse 4, that they may teach the young women to be sober, and this, this is one of the problems that I mentioned with Moore when I looked at her back in 2000. This is not a sober woman. She's, she's not sober. The young woman to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So there it is again. You don't obey the principles. People can blaspheme the word of God. Because they see they say they're Christians, but... I don't really see it in their lives. You see, but when they see this godly testimony, that's what God uses to draw his elect to himself. Did you know that? If there is someone really hungering and thirsting after the Lord, maybe the father, that is, is drawing a sheep in, and they come into the church or they come into your household maybe, they see Christian families, they see the way the men are, they see the godliness in these women, God uses that to draw them to salvation. And then he uses that so that they can be discipled and become more like Christ. That's how God uses you. And believe me, women, you can see this even in the Garden of Eden. God has given women a influence, a, a power, so to speak, to influence in a silent, more quiet way than men. And so this is how God uses women for his glory. God isn't using Beth Moore, Joyce Meyer, and these others in these ways because they don't exhibit any of these qualities. But as you exhibit these qualities, God uses this in a powerful way to influence, to draw his people in, and to disciple them for God's glory, you see. So when we are heavenly-minded, eternally-minded, we go to the word of God, and this is what we see this is how I can be used by the Lord. And believe it or not, these evangelical feminists and their philosophy is actually an attack on you, women, sisters. It's actually an attack on you. Because think about it, ladies. They're saying, I'm up here preaching and I'm living this way. You can be a Christian and do that if you want. But, you know, I can be a Christian too and live this way. It's no problem. You see what I'm saying? They're saying, you do what you want to do, but I'm going to do this, and I'm still a Christian. No, you're not. No, you're not. You can't. You can't be. The way that you're living as faithful women, according as Scripture has ordained, that's the way all Christian women are to live. And when you see these women doing that, that's a direct attack against you, and it's an attack against the Word, you see. So this is why it is vitally important to consider this. And then just consider, brethren, the gospel itself. The Lord Jesus 
dying on the cross for us, rising from the dead so that we could be saved, so that our sins can be forgiven. If that has happened, it's our desire then to honor and glorify him in our lives. And how do we do that? For by grace we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not according to our works. But then what does Ephesians 2.10 say? There are good works that God has ordained for us to walk in. So we consider the gospel. We consider the sacrifice of Christ. You ladies, this is the good works that God has ordained for you. And let's all consider the ways that God has ordained for us to walk in, to serve him, and to minister to one another in the church. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that your word is so clear. Really, as you know, evil men and women, they try to twist it. They try to uh, distort it. They come up with all kinds of intellectual arguments as they lay down to sleep at night, as they ponder things through the day. In what ways can they justify their actions? And so it does require us at times, we know, to dig in, to examine the arguments, and to form right arguments against those things, against those attacks. That is what we have tried to do just a little bit for the few moments today. But Lord, we thank you that really When we just wipe that all away, your word is so clear. It's so clear. And that's why we know the church has recognized this throughout church history. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified now. We pray that even in our own congregation here, that the men would be faithful in the roles that you have given to us. Whether if it's in our business, whether if it's in our homes, whether if it's in the church, may we be faithful. So many men for so long have just tried to rebuke the women concerning their roles when we have not been fulfilling ours. Oftentimes, men, we have been lazy. We have been immature. And Lord, we need your grace to be those faithful men you call us to be. We pray for the women in this congregation, too, that they would do those good works that you call them to do as well. Lord, we thank you that you've made it so clear how you use us, how you want to use us, and how you have ordained that we would glorify you by through what way, and that is through obeying what you tell us to do. Lord, give us grace, protect us from spiritual attacks, and by the power of your spirit, make your word alive in our hearts this day. Apply it to us powerfully, we pray. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.